Okay, today we come to the heart of this letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, it's an interesting chapter in which Paul goes into a little more detail about the times that will lead up to the second coming of Christ. In the latter half of the chapter, he encourages the believers to stand firm until that day comes. So let's think about some of the things we see here, and let's think first about signs of the times. Paul begins this chapter with a fascinating layout of what will precede the coming of the Lord. He indicates two things generally that will precede the second coming, but it's also uh, he's also quick to make sure they understand uh, what will finally happen at the second coming. So what will precede it and what will happen at it. So let's take a quick look at those things. First, Paul says that the second, he says in verse 3, that the second coming of Christ, quote, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Hmm, what's that talking about? Well, to begin, the word rebellion there in verse 3 is the Greek word apostasia, apostasia, which means a turning away or a falling away from the faith, that is, to become apostate. So Paul says before Christ comes back, a great apostasy will take place. Not only that, he puts the definite article, the, uh, in front of it. Not just a rebellion or a, an apostasy, but the rebellion, the apostasy, which indicates that he's talking about a specific event that will precede the coming of the Lord. Uh, theologian Anthony Hookema has this to say about this particular sign of the times. In his book, The Bible in the Future, he says, quote, the fact that this sign is called a falling away or apostasy implies that this will be a rebellion against the Christian faith as it has been heard or professed. We may therefore assume that those who fall away will be at least outwardly associated with the people of God. The apostasy will occur within the ranks of the members of the visible church. Those who are true believers will not fall away, and he quotes John 10 and 1 Peter 1, but many who have made an outward profession of faith will do so, end quote. So the first sign that Paul says will precede the second coming of Christ will unfortunately be the turning away from the faith of many who are at least outwardly associated with the church and who claim to follow Christ. Paul does indicate, and we know it to be true, that some of this happens even now, <laughs> I mean, we do. We, we see it happening even now. He says in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. But there will be an intensification of this as the time gets closer for the Lord's return. But second, Paul says that together with a widespread apostasy is the revealing of, as he puts it in verse 3, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. This is the one elsewhere termed the Antichrist. The appearance of this figure seems to arise out of the apostasy of many in the church. Now, John reminds us in 1 John 2, uh, verse 18, that while you have heard uh, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Many have arisen throughout history, even as early as the first century when the New Testament was still being written, to oppose Christ or claim to be the Messiah uh, himself, both Paul and John however, seem to indicate that while many smaller antichrists have already arisen, one on a larger scale is still to come who will uh, indicate the imminency of Christ's return. Paul says the antichrist is associated with 
uh, verses 9 and 10, the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. End quote. Those figures are never named in the Bible, and thus it's, it's practically impossible for us to name them here. Whoever it may be, though, the Christian is not, I repeat, not to fear them. Why? Because Paul graciously pulls back the curtain showing that showing what will be the final end of this man of lawlessness or antichrist. Paul says matter-of-factly in verse 18, I mean, excuse me, in verse 8, the Lord Jesus will kill the antichrist with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Well, so when Jesus appears, it's over. Ball game. <laughs> uh, John describes in much more detail in Revelation 19 when he says in verse 11 and following, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is faithful, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flaming fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. The army and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, Essentially, Paul's message, message to the Thessalonians and to us is to be aware of what's coming, but don't be afraid of it. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So based on these assurances, heed Paul's exhortation to stand firm and make sure that your fears are not misplaced. Secondly, let's think about what he says about loving the truth i want to point out something uh about how paul describes those who will perish on the day that the lord returns he says in verse 10 that they will perish quote because they refused to love the truth and so be saved that is such an important word there are many who know the truth that however is not a sign that a person is born again a sign of one that is truly born again is not knowledge of the truth or even simply uh, verbal profession of faith of belief but a genuine and clear love for the truth that's a question to ask yourself if you claim to believe the truth you need to ask yourself is, is there evidence in your life that you also love the truth and desire to live it out and that is why on many uh, mornings Sunday mornings when we open the word together after we read the word uh, I often pray that God would not only open up our eyes to see the truth and our minds to understand the truth, but also give us hearts to love and embrace the truth. Because that is a mark of genuine faith. But think finally with me about the golden chain of salvation. There are some beautiful truths set forth near the end of the chapter in verses 13 and 14. We find in those verses um, what I'm calling the golden chain of salvation. These truths are given as the, the basis, as the undergirding for the exhortation to the believers to stand firm and hold to the traditions that they were taught by Paul and his companions in verse 15. 
Paul doesn't just naively tell them to stand firm, but he gives them very good and unshakable reasons to believe that they can and will stand firm. So uh, what is this golden chain of salvation, and where do we see it in verses 13 and 14? Well, look again at what Paul says in those verses. First, he refers to them as brothers beloved by the Lord. Verse 13, brothers beloved by the Lord. Then he acknowledges again, as he did in his first letter to them, recall 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, that God chose you as first fruits to be saved. That's verse 13. This choosing would work itself out in history in two ways. First, he tells them he has, in, he has called you through our gospel in such a way that you responded with belief in the truth. And secondly, upon saving faith, they would then be saved, as he puts it in verse 13, through sanctification by the Spirit, meaning God would grow them and mature them in the faith. And all this God designed so that, as he puts it in verse 14, they may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in the end. So there's the chain. God sets his love upon them, chooses them, calls them so that they believe, sanctifies them, and ultimately glorifies them in his presence in heaven. That is almost identical to what Paul says in Romans 8, 29, and 30. What is the out, practical outworking of all this? Stand firm. We know that God will not let us go because he is the one who planned and accomplished our salvation from before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1. We can confidently stand firm in our faith because we know that we have a great God who will keep us standing throughout the hardest of times and help us to remember that this life is like a mist or a vapor, while heaven in his presence will know no end. Those are a few thoughts from Second Thessalonians chapter 2.